Um, we are in a, a sermon series in the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel according to Matthew, and today we're going to take a look at the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew's chapters 5 through 7, and we're going to start right off with a passage of Scripture, and this one is actually the, the last verses of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, verse 24 through 27, Matthew 7, 24 through 27, and it'll also be up on the screen. So let's read that to start off with. Uh, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the, storm, the, the streams rose, and the wind blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Remember singing that song at church uh, when we were a kid. You know, if you, uh, if you picked up the Bible and opened it just randomly, you know, just put your finger down, and it just happened to be this passage right here, and started reading, no doubt you'd, as you read that, you'd probably ask yourself, what words? What words? It, uh, if I hear what words of yours, Jesus, and put them into practice, I will be wise? Well, the answer to what words is the words of his sermon that he had just taught a crowd on a hill. Uh, we call it the Sermon on the Mount. It wasn't really a mountain. It was more like a hill. Uh, but Jesus had just uh, presented a series of lessons, uh, and he is saying at the end of this, this sermon if you put all of those words, all of those lessons that I just taught you into practice, uh, you will be like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. Now, fail to put, and, and, and he adds, fail to put those words that I just taught in these lessons, fail to put them into action, and you will be like the foolish man who built his house upon the sand. You know, this, this is a basic image or metaphor that the people of the first century Middle East uh, could relate to. They could identify with that. You know, most of their construction during that time was masonry. Uh, not a lot of wood uh, structures like we would have today. So they would understand bricks and stone construction. And they also lived in an area which included both desert and mountains, uh, which were made up of sand and rock respectively. So they understood foundation material. You try to build a heavy brick or stone building on sand and it's not going to be stable. Everybody understood that. The wind and the rain comes and they will eventually erode the foundation and the building can collapse over time. Building a house on sand is not a wise thing to do. That audience that Jesus spoke to that day understood that. Build a house on solid rock, on the other hand, and wind and rain comes, it's going to have little effect on your house, and it's going to stand. It's not going to collapse. And that's a wise thing to do. And everybody that listened to Jesus speak that day understood exactly what he was talking about. And you and I can relate to that image, too. Even if we're not, if we're not a, a contractor and we don't build things, we, we, can, we can just understand the difference between sand and rock. 
You know, most of us have been to the beach, uh, and we've seen what happens with houses that are built on sand or near the ocean. If you were to drive up Highway uh, 12 on nor- uh, the northern part of the Outer Banks, you, during a, after a storm, you might see something like this. This is Highway 12 after one of those hurricanes or a northeastern that had come through. If you drive up Highway 12 along that stretch uh, just uh, towards Kitty Hawk, um, there aren't any houses. Now, they've, they've repaired the road, but for, for a long stretch of, of space, there are no houses on the ocean side of that road anymore. And the reason is because the storms blew them away uh, or eroded the foundation so much that they, they, they couldn't be inhabited anymore. Um, on the other hand, buildings that were built on, on a solid foundation of rock can last for centuries. Uh, no, no matter what rain and wind comes their way, they're still there. For example, uh, some Roman structures uh, from before the first century are still standing today and still in good shape. This one is the Maison Carie Temple in southern France. It was built in 16 B.C., over two, well over 2,000 years ago. And it's, it, looks like, it looks brand new, doesn't it? Uh, they still stand today because, in part, they were built on a firm foundation, a foundation that never wavers. So that image of foundation makes sense even to us today. Jesus told those who were listening to his lessons um, on the hill that day that if they would put those lessons that he had just taught into practice in their lives, uh, their lives would not crumble and fall when the storms of life come. They could endure storms. Storms are going to come. But if you're on a firm foundation, you can endure the storms. And you can come out standing firm on the other side of the storm. But if they did not put those practices in, those lessons into practice, when storms come, their lives will fall. Well, all we have to do is is, uh, is, is read this if we want to find out uh, how to have a life that won't fall. You know, if there's a recipe somewhere that, that can help me have a life that doesn't collapse and fall, uh, even when storm comes, I want to hear about it. And it's right here in, in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5 through 7. Some fantastic lessons about just living life and being successful at it. Now, we're not going to do an in-depth study of the Sermon on the Mount for a couple of reasons. For one, uh, we just did a study on Wednesday night uh, that some of you participated in uh, uh, last year, late last year. Uh, and I enjoyed that study, and I hope some of you who were there did too. We learned a lot from it. Another reason that we're not going to go through it step by step uh, is because it's, it's a pretty in-depth sermon, and there's a lot of topics, and if we went through every single topic, it would take us forever to get through Matthew. So, so since we just did this on Wednesday night, uh, I'm just going to do a quick summary this morning uh, to give us an idea of just some of the principles that Jesus taught here. And, and then I want us to then, what we could do for your ba- di- di- daily Bible study is you could just take some time to go through the Sermon on the Mount because a lot of these lessons that he taught, you don't need to go to a commentary or, or look up uh, some some uh, information on the internet about it, you, they're just pretty plain to see. 
the Sermon on the Mount are great lessons. So I would encourage all of us, after I sum it up today, go back and do a more in-depth study for yourself in the Sermon on the Mount. One of the things that we notice about the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus essentially turns conventional wisdom upside down uh, in many ways. He, He especially turns Jewish conventional wisdom upside down. You see, remember from our introduction, introductory sermon a couple of weeks ago, Matthew was a Jewish author writing to a Jewish audience, trying to help them understand that Jesus was their Jewish Messiah. So uh, he's talking to them in special ways that they can understand. Again, this metaphor of the, the buildings and foundations was something they could understand. Uh, it was very relevant to their lives. And just like we do today sometimes, um, Many Jews had been taught the letter of the law, but not the spirit of the law. In other words, uh, they knew what their laws were. They could list them. They, They had them memorized. They could tell you exactly what their laws were, but they didn't understand why they were. You know, they would end up mechanically following the the rules, checking them off. Well, I did that one, did that one, did that one. But then they didn't, many times they didn't understand why they were following them. What, what, what is God, why did God give us this law in the first place? For example, they understood that they should not commit adultery, be unfaithful to their spouse. Um, And and Jesus covers this topic in, in chapter five, verse 27 and 28, where he said, you have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in their heart, in his heart. You know, the the Jewish audience that was listening to Jesus that day understood that it was a sin to have an affair with someone that was not your husband or your wife. It was a no-brainer for them. They understood that. All of them agreed With that law, you don't cheat on your spouse. What they didn't understand is that unfaithfulness is more than just a physical thing. It's just, it's more than just a physical act. Unfaithfulness to your spouse always, always begins right here in your heart. You know, no one ever wakes up one morning and decides, you know, I've never really thought about her before, but today I'm going to start an affair with my coworker just right out of the blue. It it just came to me. (laughs) No, that's not the way it works. That's not the way affairs begin. Affairs always start first right here in your heart. A thought about a person as he or she walks by. Uh, A smile across the room. Uh, a, A conversation at lunch, a friendly conversation at lunch with more thoughts later. Lustful fantasies maybe about them. It may take weeks or months before you actually take action towards those thoughts and begin a physical affair. But Jesus wants us to know that the sinful affair began not with the physical act, but with the thoughts that you had in your heart. Jesus wanted them, and he wants us, you and I, to understand that God cares as much about what's in our heart as he does what we actually do. That's just as important. If you want to endure the storms in your marriage, and every marriage has a storm here and there, some more than others, uh, and, and maybe even avoid a lot of storms in a marriage, 
Don't just avoid a physical affair. Uh, avoid even thinking about an affair. Avoid looking lustfully at anyone who is not your husband or your wife. Jesus wants us to understand that those two are the same thing. The physical affair and the, the affair of the heart are the same thing in God's eyes. And this same principle is found when Jesus taught a lesson about murder. Let's look at that one, verse 21 uh, and 22 in chapter 5. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Now, is Jesus saying that, that being angry with someone is the same as murdering them? That sounds crazy. <laughs> well, spiritually, in some cases, yes, it's the same thing. Spiritually. Now, while no one is going to be sent to death row because they're, they're angry at someone, uh, or because they hate someone, spiritually, they are the same. Because just like with adultery, um, uh, most murders begin in the heart uh, with anger and hatred. Uh, unless you're some kind of a psychopath. Uh, you're not going to murder someone unless you first have harbored anger and hate in your heart that has just festered and grows and grows until it finally leads to murder. No, one, no normal person just wakes up in the morning and says, you know what, I'm going to murder somebody today. Uh, no, it, it's, it's a long process anytime that happens of hatred and anger that builds and builds and builds. Well, of course, murder is a sin. We all understand that. Jesus' audience understood that. Uh, but Jesus wants us to understand that God places the anger in our hearts that leads to murder in the same category, even though we may never actually get to the murder part. The anger that would lead to it is the same in God's eyes. But then just Jesus takes this lesson uh, that, that many in his audience, both then and now, would see as unreasonable, uh, and, and he turns it even more upside down. Not only should we not harbor anger in our hearts against someone, but we should love them. What? Yes, Jesus taught that we should love our enemies. That's crazy, isn't it? Chapter 5, verse 43 and 45. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Jesus' Jewish audience and his contemporary audience today uh, uh, often follow con conventional wisdom, don't we, that says this, of course we should love our neighbor. Well, that goes without even saying, but we don't have to love our enemy. That, that's crazy. That's crazy to love your enemy. In fact, it's only right that we should hate them. It, it, it's even okay if we seek revenge against them. Uh, do unto them what they did unto us, right? That makes sense. Everybody agrees with that. But Jesus stands that conventional wisdom on its head, and, and he tells us that we should love them. Love your enemies. 
And then he takes it a little farther and says that we should pray for them. Pray for your enemies. Again, the modern response to that is, what? <laughs> You're kidding me, right, Jesus? That, that just doesn't make... When, when someone hurts us, okay, all right, you're, we shouldn't murder them. We all agree with that. We shouldn't murder them. That makes sense. But, but we can't even hate them? You know, we can't seek revenge and do the same thing to them that they, that they did to us? You're saying that we need to love them and pray for them? That, that just doesn't make sense, Jesus. And from a human point of view... You're right, it doesn't make sense. Uh, It's against everything that our flesh desires. Our flesh is about getting back at someone, hurting those who hurt us. You see, in the Jewish mind and in our mind, uh, our neighbor is someone that we like. You know, someone that likes us. Uh, It's someone that we agree with. It's, it's, It's family, it's friends, it's people that are in the same political party, people that are, go to the same church. You know, those are our neighbors, uh, people we get along with. I can love them. I can pray for them. But Jesus turns that upside down, the, the, the idea of what your neighbor is, who your neighbor is. In the Gospel of Luke, he records uh, the account of the story of, that we call the Good Samaritan. Many of us are familiar with that story, which teaches us that our neighbor is everyone. Everyone is our neighbor, even those half-breed Samaritans that the Jews were taught to hate. Yes, even the Samaritans are our neighbor, and we should love them, and we should pray for them. Every human being that Jesus died for is our neighbor. No matter who they are, even those that we might consider enemies, they're our neighbor. And Jesus tells us that loving our neighbor as ourself, Jesus said, is the second most important thing we can do in our relationship with God, is love our neighbor as ourself. Second only to loving God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. One of the worst storms that you can have in your life is the storm of hatred. Holding hatred in your heart towards a person who's hurt you can bring great harm to your life, not to their, the person you hate, not their life, but to your life. Hatred brings great harm to us. It's a storm that can last for years. It's a storm that can last a lifetime. I know people who have died hating people in their life for things that they did decades before, and they never got over it. They went to their grave with hatred in their hearts. Hatred prolongs the hurt that the person did, whatever that was. It makes it fester. Hatred makes it fester, and it never heals. It's just always there, bringing you pain. We falsely think that our hatred punishes the person that hurts us, but it doesn't. A lot of times, they don't even know that you hate them. It only hurts you. It only hurts the person who hates, not the person that we hate. It's only when we decide to replace the hatred with forgiveness that healing can start to happen. Forgiveness is the first step to healing. This teaches us to love our enemy. 
And, and that doesn't mean uh, that we condone what they did. That, when we love our enemy or forgive them, that doesn't mean that we're saying, okay, what you did was okay. No, it's what they did was not okay. Forgiveness have no, has nothing to do with condoning what they did. Forgiving doesn't mean that we have to trust them again. We may never trust them again. They would have to earn that. It doesn't mean we trust them again. It doesn't mean that we forget what they did. No such thing as forgive and forget. It's always going to be there. But maybe we'll remember it less and less and less if we can let it go and forgive. It means we replace destructive hatred with forgiveness motivated by the love of Christ, remembering how he forgave us for the sins we committed against him. And it allows us to put the hurt behind us, and only then can we heal. Jesus' teaching was not crazy. (laughs) It was not crazy. Uh, It was filled with wisdom, wisdom from God uh, that, that we've that we have a hard time seeing sometimes. When we first read passages like this, we're going, no, what? What? Loving your enemy may or may not help your enemy at all. They may continue to hate you. (laughs) And again, sometimes they may not even know. And sometimes we have hatred in our heart for people that aren't even alive anymore. So certainly that's not going to affect them at all. But loving your enemy helps you heal. Bitterness destroys, love heals. Jesus was so wise in this lesson. As you read through the Sermon on the Mount, you you find many, many great lessons that that we may miss if we're relying on our human wisdom to guide us. Uh, There are lessons about giving in the sermon, praying, worry, judging others, divorce, fasting, uh, and and, and many others. Uh, Many of these lessons addressed the mixed-up view that the Jewish, that Jesus' Jewish audience had about some of these topics. In fact, that's one of the main reasons he, he gave it, was because you know, they, were, they were looking at all of these laws the same way. Uh, they had been taught to follow these, these Jewish laws, but they were never taught why they should follow them. This is the reason God gave us these laws. It wasn't just something for you to check off so you can say you did it. There was a reason for the laws. Um, they, the Jewish audience was taught the letter of the law, not the spirit of the law, as I mentioned earlier. They, they were going through the motions. Again, well, I did that one. Oop, I did that one. Oop, I did that one because I went through the motions. It was all on the outside. But in their hearts, they were still breaking the laws. Uh, they were giving to the needy, for example, uh, like they were supposed to, like the law said, to give a portion of, of what they had to the needy. But, but they weren't giving to the needy because they cared about the needy. That had nothing to do with it for many of them. They were giving so that people would see them give and be impressed by their generosity. That's the reason they were doing it. They were fasting, and fasting is a, is a great way to get focused in prayer. And when you, when you refrain from eating for a certain period of time, you can focus on prayer. You can focus on your relationship God, but with God. But they weren't fasting 
so that they could focus on prayer and on their relationship with God. Uh, They were fasting because they wanted others to know they were fasting so they would see how religious they were. And so they would come out with their hair all messed up and with their shirt untucked like mine. And they would would be moaning, oh, I'm so hungry. Why are you hungry? I'm fasting. Oh, you're fasting. You're a religious person. Man, look look how righteous you are because you're fasting. You see, Jesus was teaching them that you don't give to impress people. That's not the purpose of giving. You give in secret, actually, so that nobody even knows that you gave. Because you care about the poor, not your image. That was the reason why you're you're called to give to the needy. You don't fast so that people can see how religious you are. No, no, you, you do it in secret. You comb your, Jesus says you comb your hair. You, 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 you button all your, your buttons and you, you walk around like you normally would walk around. Not moaning and groaning because you're hungry. Uh, because you want to get closer to God. That's the reason you're fasting. Not so that people can see how righteous you are. And of course, this problem is not just exclusive to first century uh, Jewish audiences, you and I face this same tendency uh, to serve God on the outside, but not the inside. We too can be guilty of obeying God's commands, but not understanding why we should obey them. We too can be guilty of going through the motions of serving Jesus, so we can say, well, I did that. I went to church, I went to church Sunday, I went to Wednesday night, um, I, I gave my money uh, from from my tithe, but not really serving him and doing those things from our hearts because we love God and we want to serve him. We wear the name Christian. Yep, I'm a Christian. But are we seeking to be like Christ? That's what a Christian is, someone who is Christ-like. Are we Christ-like as we wear that name? Are we shining our light in our workplace, in our homes, at the gym, with our friends, or are we hiding it under a bushel when we're places like that? Because we'd want people to see that we're one of those religious people. Do people know uh, that we're Christians outside of our church uh, because, because of our behavior? B- because we are producing spiritual fruit? That's how we're identified as a Christian? Let me ask you this. Would people be surprised to hear that you claim to be a Christian? What? He's a Christian? Ooh, I didn't know a Christian talked like that or told those kind of jokes. You know, if you follow Jesus in your heart, then you, there will be no doubt to people in your life that you're a Christian because your life will reflect your faith. No matter where you are, who you're with, because you're always the same. You're always seeking to serve Christ with your life. It will be obvious that your faith is not just for show, But it's a reflection of your love for Jesus if you're serving from your heart rather than just on the outside. The teachings of Jesus don't make sense to a world that, uh, and maybe sometimes they don't make sense to you. You you might have read some of these passages and still don't understand. I, I, I just don't understand how I can love my enemy. I just don't understand after what they did to me. But when we, if we would just put our trust in Jesus, uh, he's the Son of God. He's our Savior. He knows what He's talking about. Uh, and, and trust that He knows what He's talking about. 
that, that he has our best interest in mind and just do what he says. Just do it. I don't want to love that person, but okay, Lord, I'll, I'll do it because you said I should. If we do it for the reason he says we should, we will discover it's the world that's got it wrong, not Jesus. Hatred and revenge solve nothing. We should understand that if we've held hatred and revenge in our hearts long. It never fixes anything, does it? Ever. It makes it worse, usually. Lust destroys relationships. Uh, greed and materialism leave us empty. They never fulfill us like we think they will, like the world says they will, like the commercials tell us that they will. Giving to those in need without recognition can bring us joy that is much greater than the praise of others. Following the narrow road, part of the Sermon on the Mount is saying that we should go down the narrow road, not, not the wide road that the world's on, but the narrow road to God. Following that narrow road rather than the wide road that the world is on leads us to a life of real purpose. And ultimately, it leads to eternal life with God. Jesus knows what he's talking about. Trust him. Trust him. And just do it. So as we read the Gospel of Matthew and the Sermon on the Mount and all the teachings of Jesus during this, this uh, great book in the Bible, let's decide to just trust Jesus and follow his teaching, even if it doesn't make sense to us or to people around us. No matter how upside down it might seem, it's Jesus. He knows what he's talking about. Let's just trust him. And if we do, there will be less storms in our lives. Now, there will still be storms, but there'll be less of them because so, much, so many of our storms are caused by our failure to follow Jesus' teaching. And when storms do come, and they will, we will not be washed away. Uh, we will endure them and will be stronger when the storm pass by, passes by. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for uh, th these great lessons that Jesus has taught us in the Sermon on the Mount and throughout the, the Gospel of Matthew. But this was a very special sermon, Lord, that, that just had so much wisdom, godly wisdom in it that, that, that we might not even think is wise on the surface. The world certainly would tell us that that's not wise. Um, but help us to just know. You're, the, you're, you're God, you're, you're Son, you're um, your son gave us these lessons. Let, let us just understand and trust, even if it doesn't make sense, that it's the right thing to do. And our life will be better. The, many storms will be eliminated, and even the ones that do come will be able to endure them because we follow your teaching. So, Lord, give us the strength to, to just decide, I'm going to do it your way this time, God, and not mine, not the world's way, your way. Thank you, Father, for these great lessons. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.